Greetings from the North, people of Earth. Welcome to Forum Borealis. It's time to revisit our series called From Solomon's Temple to Arcadia. And this episode belongs early in its chronology, as we're yet again focusing on the Norse mysteries, particularly from an Icelandic angle. For this, we have the optimal guest, who revisits us to shed light on lesser-known aspects of the Nordic myths, traditions, history and achievements. Here's a little preview of what's to come. The Norwegian king invited uh, the sons of nobility in Iceland for a summer camp. Mm-hmm. And then he sent uh, to the high, high summer kind of parliament, you know, we'll, I'll kill your sons and let's become Christian. <laughs> That's a black man. And they kind of weren't ready to give up on their sons, so they, they came, um, they accepted Christianity. But what happened to Iceland is, is exceptional, is that uh, the ancient tradition became the Old Testament of our Christianity. Just like the, the Old Testament of modern-day Christianity was the Jewish Bible, our traditions were Old Testament. Wow. So our priests became the professionals of the old traditions. They were not the enemies. Mm. They were the holders. So, so they were priests then both for the old and the new. That's exactly, yes. This is very unusual and I'm not yeah. sure it happened anywhere else. No, never heard of it. So, so basically you're saying that before the Jewish Old Testament, they had a New Testament of Jesus and the Old Testament, which was pagan practice. Yes, yes. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. just like the Celts, they felt there was no problem combining that. No, this is the Celtic Christianity, and uh, clearly the Vikings picked up on that, and it was the key to certainly the Icelandic culture mm. and the Viking spiritual culture in the Brisals. Because they were secret. They were not allowed to be written mm. because they are the real mythologies of Iceland and the ancient gods. But, mm. but, they, but they don't make that link that they are actually religious texts. So, okay, so he, he kind of saw this as the secret lore or as the yes, uh, very as much teachings, so. teachings more than historic records. Uh, absolutely. Uh, teaching in the frame of, of historical records for the purpose of, of really hiding the esoteric law. Do you think that Icelanders were in regular touch with the Vinlanders and the Greenlanders? Most definitely. Almost until the 11th and 12th uh, century. We were, obviously, our people uh, found Greenland. We We went into Canada. We have... As we know now by archaeology, we had settlements in Newfoundland and further afield. And even our our kind of first settlement in, in Newfoundland had evidence that they had sailed to New York. Hmm. So, so there was commerce to a large area in what we now call Canada and uh, United States of America. So, so we know, and also from genetic studies, we know that we, we have Native American blood. Mm. So, so genetic. Yeah, because there were Vikings marrying uh, Indian women, right? Yes, exactly. 
So we have primarily mitochondrial DNA from North America. So it's a female lineage. So she came to, to they came back to Iceland with her. Yes. And there, there are historical evidence from stories that this is true. Ah, so corroborating the genetic evidence. Yes, yes. All the stories, if you go um, back through all these stories about Thule, Hyperborea, or Ogigia, which is the old, oldest name, the Iliad describes Homer taking this path, uh, and Apollo, and the, you know, the, and then we have, uh, is it Pithos in uh, Marseille? Mm. Uh, they all take this route, same route describes again and again and again. There is no other possibility than Iceland. They go to Britain and they sail to the northwest following the uh, settling um, mid-summer sun and they sail for, for, for less than a week and they are there. There is no other possibility. And obviously, we know that it's at the Arctic Circle because it's, they all describe the sun is hardly settling. Mm. It's still bright in, in, um, in the midsummer. So as you may know, in Iceland, it's a little bit like in Trondheim. We have this trick question for foreigners here. How long do you think the summer day is? And they will say, oh, it must be 23 hours. No, no, it's three months. <laughs> <laughs> because and this is what they, all the stories are describing, that this is a land of the midnight sun. Mm. And, and not only that, you know, Iliad, Homer, from Ithaca, he goes there after the Trojan War, and he becomes a student of Calypso, who is just like the seven sisters of the Pleiades. She's one of the daughters of, Atl of Atlas, but they are all Atlantis. Atlantis literally means the daughter of Atlas. Mm. And Calypso, who is, the, who is the goddess of esoteric science, <clears throat> she's the teacher of, of Homer, and he studies with her for seven years. This is, in fact, very similar, and it's a Saturnian, you know, a quarter of the Saturnian circle that Plutarch refers to, that the, the, the Irish, the Celts, also talk about that there is a fog around Brazil. Mm. And every seven years... Hyper, high Brazil. Yes, there's a fog around it, hyper Brazil, exactly. Mm. And, and uh, every seven years or so, the fog lifts and you can go there. Mm. Uh, the Greeks went there every four cycles, but the, uh, the Celts did it every seven years, quarter of a cycle. And this was the basis of the Rangian guard of, of uh, Constantinople, that they had techniques that no one else... That's why they were so precious as, as uh, mercenaries. Mm. So the Varangians were just Christianized... Yes, versions of these of this old uh, culture, but probably semi-Christianized. If they were in style of the um, early on, they were definitely heathen. But later mm. on, they probably just like the Icelanders warriors. They were they honored the old tradition and the new traditions, and mm. it was through the Vodan uh, cult that they overcame the fear of death, and that made them honorable, principled, and um, fearless in uh, fearless in battle. Perhaps you recognized the voice of Dr. Haraldur Erlandsson, incidentally son of another guest we've had on, namely the veteran parapsychologist and reincarnation scientist Dr. Erlander Haraldsson. May he rest in peace. Like father, like son, they both have too much on their CV to cover it adequately, 
So I'll share with you the brief version of Dr. Erlandson. He is a doctor of medicine, master of science in clinical neurology, doctor of clinical nutrition and member of Royal College of Psychiatrists. Hailing from Iceland, but has in long periods lived in India and UK. He's worked as a consultant psychiatrist, a forensic setting psychiatrist, medical director and hospital CEO. He attended the University of London's Institute of Neurology within the Faculty of Brain Sciences in 92 and 93, where he got his Diploma of Clinical Neurology. Between 96 and 2000, he achieved his MRC Psych as a consultant psychiatrist from the Royal College of Psychiatrists. Between 98 and 01, got his Master of Science in Mental Health from University of London. Additionally trained in various techniques of hypnosis, including past lives regression and life between life therapy. Uh, is a scientific acupuncturist trained with Felix Mann, a practitioner of Syriac's system of orthopedic medicine, of the EMDR technique for trauma therapy, of body-oriented psychotherapy, and in using Jungian techniques to integrate fractured parts and many internal parts of self-models. Some work in his career has been consultant psychiatrist for the Sussex Partnership Trust, for the Signet Hospitals and at the Community Mental Health Service. As medical director for Signet Healthcare, as director for Helios Limited, as consultant psychiatrist at the Helen Keller Ward for Partnerships in Care, as CEO and medical director for Iceland's most famous clinic, the HLMFI Health Clinic and Spa, and as chief psychiatrist for HSU South Iceland Mental Healthcare. Harald Erlandsson is typically described as an inspirational leader, a good teacher, a trusted colleague and a compassionate therapist whose approach is simultaneously humane and professional to the delight of his patients and a welcome support for his team members. He's even a whistleblower, having reported corruption in the Icelandic health system despite heavy personal cost. He originally went into psychiatry in order to better understand inner experiences in stable people and illness for trauma processing and wisdom emerging. He's integrated in his approach traditional spiritual practices like shamanic animals techniques, soul retrieval, spirit release methods, microcosmic circulation and all sorts of dream work. Together with psychotherapist and author Keith Hagenbach, he wrote the book The Man Who Drew Triangles, which we cover in a former show with him called Insanity vs. Spirituality. One of Haralder's main passions is sacred geometry, especially in terms of ley lines, etymology, sacred sites and large-scale geography. Additionally, his personal interests are myths, symbolism, dream time, shamanic journeys, astrology, lucid dreaming, yoga and meditation, mantras and esoteric afterlife lore, to mention some. Consequently, he is also an initiate of several esoteric traditions like R.C., co-masonry, including both Swedish and Scottish Rite, Martinism, Pythagoreanism, and was recently elected as leader of the Icelandic Theosophists. 
He's also a student of Eastern traditions, among others, Yogananda and Self-Realization Fellowship, Sri Vidaya, Sri Shinmoy, Shankara of Kanshipuram, Sri Anna Subramanian Ayer and Ramakrishna Mission, and Icelandic adept Sigvaldi Yalmarsson, with main focus on esoteric tantra, mental physics, and breathing exercises. Converging his spiritual and professional interest in his more recent work on psychedelics, organizing conferences and advocating for legalization and usage in medicine and therapy. This can be explored deeper in their website psychedelicsiceland.com. He is also raised in a Norse esoteric tradition, which he has studied ever since a teenager, and is a renowned authority in the field, particularly from its esoteric aspect. So today he will demonstrate this with walking us through a synopsis of rare and fascinating tidbits of just what people have been up to in this remote corner of Earth the last several millennia. Today we are joined by a former guest who's revisited us, namely Dr. Haralder Erlandsson. Welcome back, uh, Haralder. Yeah, thank you, Alan. Yeah. By the way, isn't it e- easier for Icelanders to call each other Harald? Well, we, we always use first name, but Harald or Icelandic is Haralder. So you, you insist on on, uh, on including the U-R at the end? Well, for Icelanders, yes, but um lived many years in England and <laughs> I dropped the ending. <laughs> right, because here you would be called Harald. Yes. But, but Iceland is like the ancient Greeks who have the OS on the end. Right. We, we have these uh, old endings that have been simplified in many of the modern languages. Right. That makes sense. And Iceland is exactly where we're going today. Last time we had you on, uh, Far back now, actually. Been some time. Yeah, that's terrible. You touched some of the mysteries, but I want to delve deeper with you now. And obviously, we've had a few Norse shows since that time. And I discovered to my pleasant surprise that it's actually pretty popular these days, especially among Americans. So Very good. Let's, let's delve into this history. And I think a good starting point, Haralder, is the Icelandic um, chap called... Let's see what he was called here. I have his name written down. Um, Would that be Einar Paulsson? Einar Paulsson, yes. Yeah. Yes. Could you tell us first, who, who is this guy? Right. Einar Paulsson was a, obviously a superior intelligent guy. I think he's one of the few at the University of Iceland who got 10 in everything. He, he was a kind of super intelligent. His uh, his forte was languages, and he spoke multiple languages. But he was always a man of questions, seeking understanding and knowledge. And he became an expert on medieval mythologies. That was his kind of forte. And he so he was a professor at the, at the university. No, he was never a professor. Huh? He started his own language school called Mimir. And that that was his worldly, he, that was what made him money to teaching languages. But his hobby was uh, studying the esoteric, studying languages, studying mythologies. 
And he started studying the old sagas, especially one of them, which is called Njala. Hang on. When did he live? Let's start with the basics. Um, when did he live? Um, he probably died 20, 30 years, 20 years ago. I'll, I'll look it up. But um, uh, I met him a few times. A very, very nice man. Um, yeah, 95. Okay, I looked it up. 25 to 96. Yes. Okay, so he's a contemporary, basically. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Uh, we've had some other guys uh, in Iceland over the last 150 years that have looked at the esoteric of our Icelandic cultural history. Um, because strangely, Iceland in the 11th, 12th and 13th century, we we were the highest cultivated nation on the planet. People find that very strange. Why would an island in the middle of, of the Atlantic um, have high classic language and culture and poetry and and science and mathematics and astronomy? It is, doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. But it was very much so. And, and we created, just like the Greeks and the Indians, a whole set of sagas and poetry and mythologies. Um, and we were very wealthy. And we were welcome in the courts, Scandinavia and, and England and elsewhere as well. What time and, period are we at? Sorry. What time period? Well, this is, well, Iceland is founded, or the Goth Weald, as we, it was called, was started off in the 9th century. Mm-hmm. And we became Christian in the year 1000. But we, we came to Christianity under some conditions. We were blackmailed into it, but we were always very clever lawyers, and we said we would accept um, Christianity on the condition that our secret tradition was legal. Mm. So we remained our, if you like, esoteric school, sacred lodges, sacred meetings, honoring the old ancient god and the old poetry and the mystery traditions, they remained strong probably until the 17th, 18th century. Wow, that's that late. And so it, Iceland was the last stand of the old traditions. Because mm. I, I know the Swedes were good at preserving some of the mysteries. Yeah. Right? Uh, but uh, eventually Sweden fell and then Norway forced... After we got Christian, didn't we force you to become Christian too, on paper? You, exactly. We were, it's a long story, but the king, the Norwegian king invited uh, the sons of nobility in Iceland for a summer camp. Mm-hmm. And then he sent uh, to the high high summer kind of parliament, you know, we'll, I'll kill your sons unless you become Christian. <laughs> That's a black man. <laughs> and they kind of weren't ready to give up on the sons, so they, they came... Um, accepted Christianity. But what happened to Iceland is is exceptional, is that the ancient tradition became the Old Testament of our Christianity, just like the, the Old Testament of modern-day Christianity was the Jewish Bible. Our traditions were Old Testament. Wow. So our priests became the professionals of the old traditions. They were not the enemies. Hmm. They were the holders. So so they were priests then both for the old and the new. That's exactly, yes. This is very unusual and I'm not yeah. sure it happened anywhere else. No, never heard of it. 
But do you think that, I mean, how long do you think the the esoteric aspect, the Norse aspect was preserved as a living thing? Well, we don't really know, but I, I think when we became Protestants, that's when it started to become more and more difficult. Right, of course. They are more fanatical. Yeah, because they, they that was more, it was a breach of the lineages. But I think individuals maintained the tradition, but it became disconnected from the religious practice. So there was a split. The, the Our national Old Testament was no longer in power, if you like, hmm. when we became Protestants. Then it was the Jewish Old Testament. Right. So, But uh, still you preserved the Norse scriptures. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, we maintained, yeah. Yeah, and I also heard that there's uh, some new discoveries. Are you familiar with this? Some magical uh, scriptures has popped up lately. Not that I'm aware of. You'll have to show me the links. Oh, damn, I should have. Yeah, I should yeah. have given you details. Damn. Yeah. Because I, I was sure you were aware of this. They have found, um, what was it? Um, I mean, obviously, it's, it's old stuff, right? But I, I yeah, don't know you, how it's resurfaced. I, I'm happy to look through it and, and make an opinion on it. But in a person, in, in his first, he gave out, I don't know, 15, 15 books or something. But mm. his observation from one of the sagas, the, the best known, which is called Njola, which is kind of after our Merlin, if you like. It's named after our wise man. Uh, Njall, who was a kind of a, an expert in law, possibly in magic, but he read that book from the medieval point of view. Is this a mythology? Is it? Uh, because uh, strangely, our Icelandic sagas are written in a very compact and matter-of-fact language, and it it is almost like a recording history. It mm. is made as if it was real. But when he started looking at it, yes, the the, uh, the farms, the historical aspects were all true, but it seemed to be based on mythologies that were very similar elsewhere. So he started thinking, okay, perhaps Icelandic stories that our because he he became the enemy of the official view of Icelandic culture. Mm. which was very historical, just like we do with Christianity. Jesus existed, the Old Testament books are all true. Instead of seeing them as a, as a symbolic text, and um, because Icelandic kind of university were more interested in the history of language and uh, the cultural roots, and they were not interested... 0.00000 of esoteric traditions. That was not in their vocabulary. But he, being a student of medieval esotericism, he was looking for it, and he found a lot of very interesting stuff. Right. But I would assume that, uh, because there's a wind now, you know that Turhayadalan, Per Liljestrom, right? They, they are going back to the taking it literally. Yes, yes. So, yeah, but are there no history, in your view, in the sagas? Is everything allegoric, or is it a, a case of both? Well, well, there are the majority of our sagas are written in a very literal style. But we have a few books that uh, the our linguistics, as I would tell, uh, call them, they call them lie stories, because they are fantastic. 
they're about magic and and giants and and uh, beings in the mountains and strange beings and therefore they think they must have been written later, like in the 13th or 14th century. But in fact, they are about... Dur- all- Hang on, during Christian era? That sounds fishy. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, and, and it seemed that they are probably written later, potentially, because they were secret. They were not allowed to be written mm. because they are the real mythologies of Iceland and the ancient gods. But, yeah. but they... Uh, but they don't make that link that they are actually uh, religious texts. Mm. I see. So, okay, so he, he kind of saw this as the secret lore or as the yes, uh, very as much teachings. So. Yeah. Teachings more than historic records. Uh, absolutely. Uh, teaching in the frame of, of historical records for the purpose of uh, really hiding the esoteric law. Right. But uh, uh, before we uh, go even deeper into the, these things, what uh, do you make of the histor- historicity of things? Because this is why it becomes uh, difficult, right? And uh, I mean, you, you're very aware of, of course, the, the early contact with uh, America. Yeah. But uh, what is uh, in I- Iceland? Do you learn in school that this is a matter of fact or... Yeah, of course. We learned the official official history of Iceland that it was kind of not unpopulated before the Viking came. See, as our early stories say that there were some monks here, but they kind of fled when we arrived, and <laughs> and there's no real background history. And we are, they got killed, I'm sure. Yes, and we are proud of our Viking traditions. Even our medieval stories talk very down to the. Irish and British people, because we said we're not descendant of slaves, right. we're honorable Vikings, but yeah. clearly <laughs> the first three, four centuries of Iceland, it was a slave kingdom. There were landlords and slaves. We owned people and they kept the farms going. The, the noblemen uh, lived on the work of others. So so we were kind of, they, they were rich lords, if you like, mm. uh, just like they were in England and, and elsewhere. But we obviously became kind of famous because of our um, cultural background. We were we were different from the Norwegians, hmm. um, and we held other cultural values. Our our most esteemed people were the poets, hmm. because they were not only poets; they were the the high learned men of of our esoteric law. Did did you call them bard? No, uh, we call them skull. Skald, of skald. course, skald. Yes. Yes. yes, which is very similar word to both school, but also the goddess of the past, uh, Skuld, mm. one of the three witches. Mm. So it is based on the spirit tradition uh, of the goddess. Mm. That makes sense. So this, but has anything been uh, revised in uh, official history? No, the official, even though Einar Paulson has been, he was kind of uh, lauded or made a a sir because of all his work. Mm. Uh, But still the official attitude at the university is that uh, this is a historical uh, document. But they have been at the university, and I've been uh, part of that, is to honor Einar as a... Uh, honoring the spiritual law. And there have been moments, they are not the majority view, that Einar is actually pointing to a, a much uh, deeper culture within Icelandic tradition. Mm. 
Okay, so this Ainar... Um, Ainar Paulson. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you're done with talking about him, but it couldn't hurt to give a potpourri or a summary of his... his... Yes, uh, as I said earlier, Ainar was a very intelligent man, did extraordinarily well at university, uh, learned multiple languages, but his passion was medieval mythologies. Mm. And... Um, and then he started exploring ways to apply that knowledge to the Icelandic sagas and was really surprised that the, that the same or similar myths were found in our Icelandic sagas. So he started more or less like an archaeologist. Uh, he started looking at our stories and how similar they were to many uh, ancient myths. And he found a lot of uh, interesting things. And then he took it further and try to connect it like with uh, astrology and astronomy and uh, the idea of a, a spiritual progress. Um, so, and, and perhaps for me at least, the most important part of his studies was that he realized that in most myths, and most certainly in the Icelandic myths, there was a map that was implied in the stories. And that map kind of laid the, the zodiac on the land, and there was a process. Uh, within that circle, and there was a reference point, a central point within each locality, and everything kind of was reflected in the story around that point. Okay, so do you think that he, like, did you ever meet him, for example, or was that? Oh yes, yes, yes. Oh, I yeah, yeah. He, oh, you met him. He, yeah, yeah, and he inspired a lot of us. He inspired also another friend of mine which is called Thorarin Thorarinsson, who um, is an architect, who starts in doing kind of measurements of various points and directions related to sunrise and sunset of midwinter, tried to confirm Einar Paulson calculations. Einar was definitely not a mathematician, so he made very rough estimates. Mm. Um, but Thorarin found that a lot of his, his uh, observations were true, um, I've taken it a bit further with the help of the kind of professor of astronomy mm -hmm. in Iceland and found that, well, his calculations are very crude, but his concepts are valid and that has inspired um, much more further explorations of, of um, the Icelandic sagas and how they're written into the land, kind of ceremonial landscape, if you like. So, uh, yeah, I remember you told me that you were thinking of writing a book together with another chap about something like this? Yes, that, that was with Thorarin. Thorarin, in the end, didn't want to do it. Okay. I think he, he feels that some of the things are re not ready to go on print. But I think we have enough evidence to show, uh, using kind of basic logic and frequency of names and uh, use of equilateral triangles, that this definitely was... Um, done in a very scientific way. We can argue how it was done. Mm. Um, there are some basic techniques that we, we know from, from ancient uh, Rome that they were measuring directions and long distances and they were making roads even over 100, 200, 300 kilometers that more or less were straight. That's right. So we know that there was knowledge, but we don't exactly know what were the tools? We know a little bit about some of the tools, but these were the kind of secret tools of the trade. Yeah. 
I know you're aware of the work of uh, Harald Bolke. Now, I also know that you're necessarily not 100% in attunement with his interpretations, but what can't be denied <clears throat> is the connections over a huge area. Yes. Um, you know, lines and names and all that. The purpose for it or who did it or all that stuff, that's another discussion, right? Yeah. But it's there. It's now, there. the question is, if Iceland and early Norway had people involved who could do these kind of macroscopic uh, foreseeings, calculations, you know, huge geographical patterns or, uh, yeah. or even across countries, then... Uh, I think um, uh, it's it's not strange then. That, I mean, they did it. We know they've done it somewhere in, on Earth, right? So they could do it up here too. Yeah, that's and then uh, then we then it's pointing to a specific, not necessarily a law, but a specific heritage of expert knowledge, which I, I doubt originated here. Do you have any views on this? Well, I think this is just. Um history of of uh, mathematics and astronomy that go to Egypt and Mesopotamia. Mm. They were measuring, if you like, degrees or minutes, uh, distances on the sky between between the planets, and they had developed uh, good mathematics for that. And if they could do it on the sky, they certainly could do it on, on the Earth. Mm. Um, and we have evidence from, obviously, from the from the Arabs, from the Muslims, and going back to the Greeks of, of quite good measurements. So I think it is not unlikely, and, and my own studies of, of Alexander the Great, who created his uh, multiple cities called Alexandria, they demonstrate quite accurate knowledge of, of as, you, as you call microscopic measurements. He would line up his cities to create direct lines and often aligning to, to a sacred mountain, which was kind of the the core mountain of Europe, the highest mountain of Europe. So I think we, we can assume that he found out. There is this myth of Alexander the Great and the, what is called the Gordon's Knot, mm. and that he used his sword to to cut the knot, to release it, because there was that myth, whoever, whoever released the knot would become a great king. can be a myth, but from a, another point of view, I think Gordon, uh, the town of Gordon is a, a key to understanding the sacred geometry of of the Middle East. Mm. So I think this refers to a knowledge of threats, of knots uh, between cities and places and names in the old Greek culture. So I think it is an evidence that he, as long as the kind of Pythagorean, Platonic school, uh, Platon school, that they were teaching sacred geometry as a way of integrating um, their kingdoms, and if you like, move their gods from their highest points to other places. So they 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 took it literally that the sacred stream of the sacred energy was linked with the highest points, and everything had been arranged and flow from that point. Kind of a a mecha argument. Mm. Okay, I see. So we mentioned Einar, and we just started to talk about the early settlement, early Vikings. Yeah, history. Yeah, we we can even go back to the German and the Burgundian tradition because the first mention of Iceland is in the fourth century using the word Iceland. But do we know it's the same place? Well, there is a description in the 
in the myth of Siegfried who sails to Iceland. And, and there is enough description I can look up for them that he's going into the North Atlantic. Ah, huh. So they may have called it Iceland long before it became deeply popular. Yeah, and the Burgundians, when they fled from uh, South Germany to France to found the Burgundian uh, kingdom, or, or uh, then they named two of their villages Iceland. <laughs> In honor of, of the island? Of the myth of Siegfried going to Iceland ah. and bringing the, uh, the queen of Iceland from Ice Estate from the ice stone town to become the queen of Gunnar uh, and therefore becoming the mother of the Burgundian uh, bloodline. Don't you think that will be Celts rather than Norse? Well, I, I think this is tricky territory. This because in the myth of Siegfried, they are clearly talking about Wodan and oh. Brynhild being a um, Valkyria. She is a, a goddess of, of Wodan. Right. So, so we are talking about the core of, of Viking mythology. But I think, I think the old cultures, they could easily translate from one culture to another because all the inter-European cultures were from the same root. So they may have slightly different stories and names, but they have the same framework as a, a reference work. Right. So I think, but, and we know that from the Greek myths that Iceland had been a high school of esoteric studies for at least 1200 BC. Huh. Fascinating. Now, if we go back to, I, I know you're aware of the work of, um, I had him on, the one, the, the one about Masons and Vikings. What's his name again? I'm blanking on his name. Yeah. You know, the chap who have uh, doc uh, researched uh, the Norse roots of Freemasonry. Let's give him a shout out. Do you remember his name? Uh, it's awkward I don't remember his name, but uh, me neither. I corresponded with him. Let's see what I've done with him. While we're looking up his name, um, well, this is Arvid Istad. Was that? Arvid Istad. Arvid Istad. There you go. There you go. Yeah, he kind of made very interesting observations that he had. Yeah, so so what do you think about uh, his, um, because now he's working on researching, you know, the first people who came to the north. But uh, he, he claims that the Norse religion is an amalgam between different god cults. Yes. That existed back in the day. Uh, do you have any particular view on this? Well, I would see that the whole Indo-Germanic tradition is an ocean of stories and myths, and every tribe has a bit of a mixture of the whole. Mm. Um, they go back and forth. The Icelanders or the Scandinavians, they, would, they were had their own source to the Indo-European stem, and many similar to the Greeks and the Romans, but they also, I'm sure, connected with the Finns, the Laps. Mm. So I think they were... And this is the interesting bit in what we call the Scandinavians. They were not a, a, a genetic tribe. They were just a gathering of people led by some language and culture. Mm. So they gathered, I think, a lot of different things into their tradition. Mm. Yeah. 
but uh, maybe most people did back in the day. I tend to absolutely yes. You know, it's easier for people if they can compare it with Hinduism. Yes, I yes. mean, many people think that Hinduism is like a straight cut religion, like Christianity, right? Yeah, in, yeah. in reality, it's, a, it's an umbrella of pagan traditions. at one specific area the same was true for Europe until the paganism was purged of course and uh, so we we can easily conceive how different tradition can arise so let's go back to you know the early 4th century we think there were some Celts living in Iceland then right most likely I think we we have this um, Burgundian myth in the 4th century that clearly relate to Iceland. Mm. We have also much older Celtic stories of uh, the island of the High Elves, which which, uh, Tolkien uses Mm. in his myth of of the land in the West. Mm. And the Irish called it many names, but one of it was was Brass. It was what? uh, Could you repeat it? Brass, B-R-A-Z. Okay. Like Brazilian, yeah, brass, <laughs> but not Brazilian. <laughs> so, wow. uh, so, and they talked about that if you sail to the west, uh, northwest, you sail from from Ireland or Scotland towards the uh, setting midsummer sun, mm. and you sail for five to seven days. You come to Iceland, and for um, the Celts, this was the holy island. This was the land of the of their gods of their high elves. And we also have those same means in Greece. Wait a minute. So the Celts who lived in Iceland were not Christian? Well, uh, they, later on they became Christians, but early on... Oh, so they started as pagans? Yes, 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 definitely. Oh. This goes be, goes before the Christianity of the Celts. Mm. Interesting. That uh, Then it becomes much more interesting. I thought it was just a bunch of monks who... who... No, no, we have... We have these old myths from, certainly from Greece and Ireland, long before any Christianity, that there was this island out in the North Atlantic, that was the island of the gods, and in fact Iceland. Yeah, mentioned mentioned even by Plutarch, right? Oh yeah, Plutarch in the in the second century, he describes an old myth which is referred in the Iliad. Um, Homer goes to this island called Ogygia. And Plutarch has this interesting story that that Saturn, who is kind of the god of time and death and navigation and earth and measurements, that every 30 years when Saturn enters the sign of of Taurus on the sky, as he approaches the Pleiades, the the Seven Sisters and Aldebaran, uh, which we can call Saint Michael, one of the angels of Taurus, then they start to gather all the best spiritual students in, in Greece. And by lot, they decide who to go, and they sail, and they describe the, the, the path. They go to Britain, and from there, they, they sailed for five to seven days towards the midsummer setting sun. And then they come mm. to the island of the gods, where you could speak to the gods. Mm. And they stay there for 30 years until the next fleet of ships comes to gather the old students and bring the new. Right. So he seems to imply that there was a, a very old tradition of the, high, the, the better spiritual trained uh, priests of the whole Greece population were educated in Ogigia in the North Atlantic. 
could could they not be Picts maybe? Because I've heard about this, uh, you know, back in the day when there was something called Doggerland here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's uh, when when the land masses were a bit different, right? Absolutely. This then, is before the end of the Ice Age. Yeah. Yeah. Then there was a mysterious people that's long gone that lived. Um, I, at least in Scotland and probably the Western. Do we know when the Western Islands were inhabited? And just for those out there who speak on the geography and talk about Orkneys, Shetland, Fairy Island. Yeah. We know obviously the, the Scandinavians took them all over. We don't know how early, probably 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th century, something like that. They start to flood over. But the pigs are kind of an older tradition. And whether they are related to the pre-Ice Age, that's quite possible. Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, um, we uh, yeah we know the Scandinavians took over at some point, but there hasn't been proper excavation in these smaller islands, have there? Do you know anything there about that? There has been some, and they have found standing stones that go way back. That's right. Uh, and Orkneys, at least, has it. Orkneys, and yeah. So, so we know, but they... The standing stones are not that old. There's also they're not as old as Stonehenge. It, well, yes, but that's uh, after the Ice Age, right? But it's still prior to known long, settlement. Long prior to the Vikings, yes, yes. And we have also these. Are you familiar? I think they're called petroglyphs. Right. These round stone balls that are almost like um, Plato's solids. Um, that are found all over Scotland. Yeah. That are, are geometrical shapes, but made into a kind of a, a spherical stone ball. Yeah, this was mentioned by uh, Christopher McIntosh when we had him on. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. said that they found, uh, yeah, they're like the platonic solids. Yes. And how old are we talking? We don't really know, but maybe something between 5,000, possibly. We don't know. They're pretty old from the high culture, long, long before. But you know, I never trust the dating of stone-based artifacts for the simple reason that stone really can't be dated. And very often when it is dated, it's dated by people who have no clue about all these. I mean, they come straight from the mainstream factory, right? So they have to interpret it in line with the prevailing orthodoxy and they did the same with Gobekli Tepe and some other sites that they've also found after Gobekli Tepe now but are just as old right but thank god in that case there was a way to prove it but usually when the stones are already unearthed I mean I suppose they could try to do some carbon dating of some organic material but who's to say that is original you can do it by Cal- is there any solar directions like mid-rise, summer, you know, sunrise at midwinter or something? You can calculate because it has a has an oscillation, so you can calculate when it was right. But the best way is to see if there are any bones or any carbon under the stone. So you lift it up under, and see if there's yeah. any anything under it, and then you can yeah. make an estimate. Yeah, that's a good point. 
So, so, so I would, I wouldn't be surprised if, if this is even older than we know. But you also have the phenomenon of imitation, right? For example, yeah. they now have found pyramids with new technology. They finding new pyramids all over the world all the time, like on uh, under the ground. They use this technology in Egypt. They used it in Peru and Bolivia. There's pyramids there too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. But the thing is. Very often we know that newer, smaller, more clumsy pyramids are imitations of the older ones. And, and yeah, this yeah. was something, you know, where there was forefather worship, right? So who's to say there wasn't original stones that then were imitated by later? Yeah, yeah. And the location could be older. You know, the location could be an old center yeah. that has some value because of placement, because of some alignment with mountains, etc. And they like Stonehenge, they're finding older and older places there that that show that Stonehenge wasn't just the beginning, it was a culmination of of a long tradition. Exactly. And I find it very suspicious that the first settlers at Iceland also had a view on the island, similar to what you were saying the pre-Icelanders had. Yeah. That it was a sacred place, a place for the gods. This even this attitude even made it into this Viking movies when they were portraying how Iceland was discovered. And even there, they emphasized that this was supposed to be some kind of holy place. Holy place, yes. yes. Yeah. So don't you think the settlers... I mean, we know that the Vikings and the Norwegians, they were not neophytes at sea. So they must have known about, maybe even traded with some of these people who populated uh, re more remote Iceland. Be, yes. Yeah, right? And so, oh, so they would already know then that it was supposed to be a sacred place, even before they populated yeah, Exactly. And uh, the, most of the Icelanders that moved to, to Iceland in the kind of ninth century, um, they came from the British Isles. They didn't come... Uh, necessarily from ah, it was Norse people from the British Isles. Yes, and there they would have known the Celtic myths of the land in the northwest. That's right. Could some of them have been uh, going there because they were forced over to Christianity? Definitely. I think they, they could have been kind of an older non-Christian source there, but it could also have been a, a kind of a Christian like the Celtic Christians, they integrated the old. And, and this is the interesting part also for Icelandic culture, that they follow this old Celtic culture, that when we became Christian in the year 1000, mm. we didn't discard our, our pagan tradition. We, we accepted Christianity on the basis that the old culture could be, still remain as a secret society. Mm. And in fact, all the priests were educated as much in the old tradition as in the Christian. So just like in, in modern Christianity, we have the New Testament and the Old Testament. For Icelandic priests, our pagan tradition and sagas were our Old Testament. So the spiritual attitude of the Icelanders compared to their other brethren in the north could actually be an influence of the pre-settlers. Absolutely. So they just integrated and, and took over they integrated. That. They integrated, I think, definitely the old Scandinavian uh, background culture, but I think they also integrated with the, the, the Celtic or the, both the Christian and the pre-Christian Celtic 
traditions. So uh, we know that um, officially Iceland was settled when? 800? Well, officially in the in the ninth century, uh, kind of late ninth century. But for example, now on the east coast, they found one of the founding um, settles in Stöð in Stöðarfjörður. But they dig, they 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 broke the rule. They started to dig deeper, <laughs> and they found an even larger far house under the settling farm. Mm. Uh, so that goes to the beginning of the ninth century, even older. They, there's an archaeological uh, project there at the moment uh, that hints that there there is something older there. So then we're talking maybe this year is the seven hundreds. Yeah, this is kind of the. We're waiting for something really solid. So we know it probably goes at least to 800. Mm. But there are also other, other archaeological explorations like to the Westman Islands, which is the biggest island south of Iceland. That shows uh, probably Celtic settlement in the 5th century. And mm. we also have this anomaly that we have found Roman coins in five different places in Iceland. Hmm. And they all date from the second century. Wow. So they, they may actually have been brought there prior to the Vikings. Yes. And, and these are these are rare coins. They, they would have been impossible to find them in the ninth century. They were rare copper coins. Right. They were rare already then. Yeah. Yeah. So, so this, the archaeologists in Iceland, they struggle with this. And they're trying to find, to explain away this. But this is really good evidence that shows that mm. that we have a cultural history at the time of writing of Plutarch, mm. or slightly later. That's kind of third century. Third century. That there were people going here with coins from the Roman Empire, mm. and maybe they were the Greek uh, apprentices, spiritual apprentices. Plutarch describes in the second century. Yeah, we know there were uh, some Greek tribes who were exceptional seafarers. Yeah, yeah. And, and they were also tied to an ancient secret law. Sure. But what's your stance on the population of how it was populated originally? I know you're, you're kind of aware of Tor Heyerdahl's work before he died. Yeah, well, well Snorri Sturluson, our kind of big author from the 12th century, he... he he claims that Vodan came from the Caucasus Mountains mm. in the uh, kind of few centuries after Christ and settled in in um, in, in Sweden. And it's from there that cultural center that this Scandinavian culture emerges. Wait a minute. When you say Snorri wrote he came from Caucasus, is he actually naming the place? Yeah, he, uh, he calls it Caucasus. He says wow. Vodan came from Caucasus. I didn't know uh, that. So he's more or less saying that there's a cultural tradition going back to the Black Sea, to yeah. the Caucasus Mountains, and the Vikings came from the east, and uh, they set, brought this culture in, and this language, um, yeah. Because Arvid uh, claims that uh, the original inhabitants here were very peaceful. Yes. Uh, they were worshipping Frey and Freya. Yeah. And that they, I think he even speculates they have a matriarchal tendencies. Sure. Well, the, the words are Scandinavian. The, the words are intergermanic. If you talk about the old the people of, of Scandinavia who more or less moved up north yeah. uh, when the Scandin you know, Scandinavian tribes moved in, 
they have a very different language. Um, I think he has compared some of the worship of the Laps to the Scandinavians, and there are many similarities. But I think they could have been, you know, moved both ways. Mm. Yeah. So I think the Laps have been influenced by the Scandinavians, vice versa. Yeah, Laps or Sami, yeah. Or Sami, or whatever you want to call them. Yeah. Uh, we call them Finns in Iceland. In our old books from the 12th century, most of the Scandinavian brought some Finn magicians with them. Mm. And the word Finn almost means a sorcerer. Literally the same meaning. A sorcerer is someone who has the source of all things. The Finn is the one who has found the source of all things. Ah, is that... <laughs> it actually means Finn found. Finn is... defined. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Wow. I think it's the one who has found the source, who is linked with the with the the heart of the universe. Interesting. So we were talking about how old population on Iceland is, and uh, you say that Germans and Burgundians were actually speaking of Iceland? Yeah, this is the interesting that one of the oldest myths of Germany, which is the myth of Siegfried and the uh, who was a dragon slayer of Fafen. And these are written, and these refer to a war between the Burgundians and Attila the Hun. And at that time, there is a, a myth of going sailing to Iceland and uh, meeting the Valkyria or the Queen of Iceland living in Eisstein, Ice Stone, and who then marries Gunnar, who was the Burgundian king. So they claim a lineage from the royal line of Iceland. And they obviously, after the war with Attila the Horn, they fled to, to uh, France to create the, the state there of Burgundia. So they, and they have, in fact, two towns called Eastland. Right. And this goes to the fourth century. So we're talking about uh, myths that are long before the Scandinavian inhabitation of Iceland and the naming of Iceland. Uh, which is yeah, because it sounds to me that they're naming Iceland from the myth. That, that was certainly seen so. But obviously, um, what does it mean? What does Iceland mean? In our Landnama talks about four names of Iceland, which partly relate to the four parts of Iceland. So we have Iceland, we have Snowland, we have Thule, and we have um, the Garden Island, if you like, Garvasholmi. Mm. Uh, and they all represent, if you like, four elements uh, of water, uh, air and fire. So they're seen as, as part of these four elemental parts of the land. And there's a hint of the fifth, which is kind of a high, the center of the high mountains. Mm. Because um, these two towns, you say, called Iceland, they are... Yes. Uh, okay, I suppose you could call a uh, town Iceland because it doesn't uh, indicate an island. I was uh, thinking yeah. that it had to be an island, right? But no, you can have a land of ice anywhere. <laughs> yeah, well, Iceland does not necessarily mean land of ice. Okay, so what, what could it mean uh, other than that? Well, the, the root is, uh, for example, in one of our stories, <laughs> the hero is son of Sur, uh, which means sun and the grandson of Is, which means fire. Is uh, mm -hmm. is similar to the word Ace, 
Or I said... Like ignis in Latin, right? Sorry? Yeah, you said inis. That sounds like ignis. No, no is. His name is Ias or long Ias. Uh, is can probably means more fire than than ice. The, the, our Icelandic myth is that Hrafn of Loki, the, the guy who bought the three ravens um, and settled in the West, he went up to the mountain, which is probably the mountain of of uh, East, which is above where he lived. And mm. he sees ice in the sea and calls it Iceland. Uh-huh. But, but I think the myth referred to it as the land of ice or, or the land of where there is ice in the sea. But the root also means um, fire. We have the old word for iron, uh, and which is still the word in German, is isaren, which mm. means kind of the, the, the fire iron. And our old Icelandic for iron is eldiar, fire iron. Mm. So uh, the, the word is, is also means fire. Mm. So yeah, it we... could be the land of fire. The, yeah, so that's probably a more likely meaning. But it could also be Ausland, the land of the gods. So mm. this root is, is, aus, us, etc. Yeah. They, they all refer to something luminous, something fiery, something pure, etc. Yeah, we have, we have places like that too, like us is a place close to yeah. Bergen. And even in Trondheim, um, where the parliament was in, was it called Frost, I think? Yeah. So that means f- freezing parliament. Yeah. Next to it is a farm, I think, is called Island. Ah, <laughs> I see. So the, the concept of Island is, is old and is long before the formal, I think it, it meant a land of light, a land of fire, a land of, of purity or something. Mm. By the way, all the trees in Iceland are planted, right? In modern well, times. Most, yeah, we, we have the, the old trees in Iceland, a bit of rowan tree, possibly imported by the Viking. We have the birch and the willow, but otherwise most of the trees are, and now we are implanted are imported, many from Alaska, because that's kind of similar but so we got lots of evergreen tree, aspen, um, yeah. that we have imported. And they are doing pretty well in Iceland. Yeah. So they come from Alaska, those evergreens. Is that because you need, they need some, some trees that actually can handle hard? Yes, that's a similar formation. climate. Yeah. There so, was they, a, so, the, so the pussy trees in Norway didn't, uh, couldn't make it? <laughs> I, I'm sure they, I don't know. They, <laughs> it's possible there there are some trees from there, but uh, oh, yeah. yeah, but there was a lot of move I don't know how long ago, fifty years ago, connecting with Alaska and importing mm. plants from there. So but we've been trying all kind of trees from around the world, but these are the ones that seem to do best. Mm. Okay, I'm experiment and see what sticks. That's good. Yeah. Well, I, I'm gonna visit uh, Iceland soon. But uh, as for today, uh, let's see. Let's go back to the naming. Yeah, there are there are those who say that um, you know the discoverers were trolling, as we say today, trolling uh, the world because yeah. they they found a place they wanted to live, Iceland. Ah, but we don't want others to come here, so let's call it Iceland. Then they found a place. That was hard to get people to come to Greenland. Yeah, and so they 
They call it Greenland to lure more people over. I don't know if that. I think this is. Do you think there's something to that? I think this is a very, this is very simplistic yeah. later eighties explanations. Yeah, I yeah. think Greenland, the root green, is both an old Celtic and an old Icelandic or Scandinavian name, and refer to Grim, uh, which is the equivalent to Wodan, but also Chrome Dub, which is the Irish uh, Midwinter Lord. So this could be uh, the land is dedicated to a god. Mm. It's the name of the god which brings certain qualities. Just mm. like Denmark is 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 Denland or Thorland is the land of Thor. Uh, Norway is is the uh, way can mean many things, but Nor is is uh, one of the primal gods of the Scandinavians. It, it can mean North certainly. Mm. So, but it is also a name of a god, and in in the midst of Norway, we have Norgor and Goa, which is almost like the Holy Trinity. Mm. Have you heard the word Norumbergia? You have to spell it for me. Norumbergia. It's uh, denoted on many maps. It's Latin, but uh, I looked up the meaning, and it, apparently, it means the way of the north. Ah, yeah, yeah. No. It's a sinking continent, I think. So we know that uh, from... Uh, I had an Amer Indian native elder on, yeah. and he told us about the myths about how the Welsh went all the way over to Americas in the... I think it was the third or second or third century. Now, we know the Welsh, uh, the Celts, were all over the globe, very migrating people they, yeah, yeah. from China to Americas, right? So if they could make it to Americas, it's not a far stretch that they would make it to Iceland too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, it's in the myths um, going back hundreds, if not thousands of years, about their sacred island in the in the west, in the northwest. That's where the gods are. That's where the high elves are. So there's no... No doubt that they. You, have... men, you mentioned a Celtic myth, even about some seafarer. Who was that? Yeah, I think it's. Um, I think he was called. Trying to, it's called Brendan. 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 Uh, yeah. That's the fifth century. He he. There's a story about him traveling, and he clearly sails to Iceland, but he also sails across the Atlantic. Mm. So these are old stories, and possibly the. The Vikings uh, knew these stories, and that led them to go to Greenland and Newfoundland. Mm. But uh, what do you make of the early Vikings uh, and America? I mean, do you think that Icelanders were in regular touch with the Vinlanders and the Greenlanders? Most definitely, almost until the 11th and 12th uh, century. We were, obviously, our people uh, found Greenland. We We went into... Canada, we have, as we know now by archaeology, we had settlements in Newfoundland and further afield. And even our our kind of first settlement in, in Newfoundland had evidence that they had sailed to New York. Hmm. So, so there was commerce to a large area in what we now call Canada and uh, United States of America. So, so we know, and also from genetic studies, we know that we we have Native American blood. Mm. So, so genetic. Yeah, because there were Vikings marrying uh, Indian women, right? Yes, exactly. So we have primarily mitochondrial DNA from North America. So it's a female lineage. 
So she came to to they came back to Iceland with her. Yes, and there there are historical evidence from stories that this is true. Ah, so corroborating the genetic evidence. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. What, what does the story say? Do you know? Um, I would have to look them up, Al, but there is some yeah. some people who were sailing. We have Eric the Red who came who became an outlaw. And he 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 led a, a number of ships to Greenland, and then there was Labour Hepney, Leif the Lucky, who uh, who uh, settled in Newfoundland and and all that. Um, I forget who of his team came back to Iceland with with a, a North American Indian lady, but it's even named. But there are some. Wow, I, I would have to look it up. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you you can look it up, and I'll look up uh, yeah. the documents I talked about. Uh, it's yes, um, yes. it's medieval documents. I remember now. I think it was Scott okay. Walter who mentioned it because they found the, you know, he's into what's called the uh, hooked X, and they found uh, medieval documents from Iceland with the hooked X on. Oh, the most interesting. Which is it's a new discovery. Yeah, I look into I it. I have to read it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's in the university, so it's, it should be available. I think to you. Yeah, yeah. I will read up on it if you send me the links. Yeah, yep. most definitely. I will do that. Here is what a new hooked axes and ancient runes found in old Icelandic manuscripts. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of runes, obviously, in Icelandic manuscripts. And, uh, yes, that's for certain. Uh, let's see here. I'll send you the link. You can... Have a look at it. Maybe you could take a look in the break or something. Yeah, sure. No problem. All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the paid link on our webpage. Thanks. So what is the official dates for the population of the... Like, like was Iceland officially before the other islands like Orkneys, Shetland, Ferry? No, it was the last one, yes, of those islands, Faroe Islands, Orkneys. It was the last of them. Yes, yes. So, so Norse people started on the other islands and then ended yes. up at Iceland. And then after that, yeah. uh, so let's say 800 for Iceland. When, when was Greenland officially populated? Um, that is late in the ninth century, a Newfoundland uh, around the year thousand. I think there's been estimated that our Native American blood uh, came to Iceland around the year thousand. So we we brought some. Yeah, but but who's to say that's an that's the first contact? But yeah, we don't know. No. Yeah, it could well be. There's there's an indication that there's a Celtic link there way back. Fifth century, sixth century, but the Vikings possibly ninth, tenth century. We don't know. There's obviously is um, labor happening. They have actually found the farm in Newfoundland where he was. Yeah, Leif's Budir. Yes, the Wayport Station. So, and that and interesting there that it was not stationary because he was buying nuts from New York. So he was potentially sailing all the way down to New York. Or he was making business with people from there. Mm. I mean, uh, if he's making business with people from there, such a chap as him, an explorer, don't you think he would at least once have said, hey, 
I'll join you for for one of the trips. Yes, definitely down there. Yeah, must. Yeah, yeah. He wouldn't be he wouldn't be satisfied sitting on that godforsaken uh, windy island, you know, waiting for the next shipment. No, no, no. They were seafarers. <laughs> they were explorers. They were restless nature. They were obviously looking for commerce because the. One of the reasons Iceland becomes a, one of the highest cultivated country in the world in the 10th, 11th, 13th century mm-hmm. is that we seem to be very rich. People can argue why we were rich. One could be the uh, that we were the leader of, of the army of the Romans, the special forces. Mm-hmm. But we were also selling ivory from the walruses and um, uh, ropes from walruses' skin. And they were very, very expensive. So there was some reason that we were always looking for something to sell for good money. So that is one of the reasons we are going. Once we killed all the walruses in Iceland, we went mm. to Greenland and Newfoundland, etc. Mm. But we're always looking for commerce. So we're looking for something to sell back to Europe. That's right. And they found, uh, this is rather recent, not sure you know, but they found um, uh, cannabis seeds in uh, Leifsbjörn. And okay. And at first they thought it was textile, right? Fabric for hemp. Yeah. But now they know it was recreational cannabis. And the only source... Oh, right. Interesting. Yeah, there's only two potential sources. Number one, which is less likely, that it was trade in the East. That, yeah. Right? But then it would have come to Norway first and then eventually Iceland and then eventually all the way over there. Yes. The more likely thing is that it was their neighbors. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, the Indians. Big business. I mean, the Amer Indians. Yeah. But is cannabis in North America? Isn't it mainly in, in South the America? The thing is, it's existed. No, uh, I don't think tradition. Uh, I th- originally, it's from yes. India. Right, but it's yeah. spread all over the world. Yeah. So the yeah. the Americas has it, uh, at least the South. Yeah. I don't know if the North has it, but still, don't you think the North Indians would would get it from their uh, from people in the South? Yeah, it could be. It could be a sacred plant uh, yeah. from the kind of mystery tradition. Obviously, this is one of the core of Icelandic tradition: is that we were Volten worshippers, which is different from the Norwegians who were mainly or Freya worshippers. Mm. So we were worshippers of death. We were worshippers of the death mysteries, which is going beyond life. And therefore we have this, um, if you lay, if you like, a psychedelic tradition mm. of, of drinking and dying and being resurrected. And so the medicine uh, that uh, Vodan had, maybe they were always looking for new medicine. And and maybe that's what why they were you know, making commerce with the North Americans to find new uh, medicine for their inner journeys. Mm. And then for sure, there could be stuff coming from the South. Yes. yeah, Because that's the treasure chamber for the Indians yes. in, in terms of medicine. Absolutely, hmm. yeah. But then it, then it also comes to, did they do anything else? Uh, you know, any of the other kind of plant medicine hmm. mysteries that are so strong, both in, in yeah, both in, uh, North, Mid, and South American traditions. Mm. Unfortunately, these are very hard things to, you know, you can't just find evidence like that when it's organic material. We just lucky we found the cannabis stuff. Exactly. So it's very hard to know. Exactly. They have found kind of medicine bags 
sacred medicine bags in caves, which demonstrate that they were actually in, I think it's mid, mid-America, that mm. go back a few thousand years, that demonstrates that the shamans were, uh, you know, gathering many um, plant medicine, psychedelic plants, just mm. like the Egyptians did, like the Greeks did, just like the Indians did. This, this was the core of their uh, sacred tradition, mm. was the medicine. We know they have found cannabis in, in Egypt. And obviously they were using the psilocybin mushroom and, uh, and, and the red mushrooms, they, they were the Eleusian mysteries. Yeah, right. By the way, do you have the mushrooms that we have? We have psychic magic mushrooms naturally growing here. Is that the same true for Iceland? Oh, yes. Yeah, we have the psilocybin semi-lanceata, which is a very potent psychedelic. Uh, is, that, is that what we call flying soap? I don't know. In England, it, one of the names is called Witch's Hat. Okay. I'm not sure. Let's see what it is in English. Flying soap. Yeah. It's a botanical. Yeah. Um, uh, and it's probably one of the medicine that was used in Vodan's uh, mirth and beer drink, alcohol drink. That is referred to in the sagas, but there is no indication that, that it was psychedelic for sure. But we know uh, that the... I mean, the way they describe mead, does it, it, the effect seems to go beyond normal beer, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. It was linked with, you know, hanging on the tree for seven days and nights. It was linked with the spear of death mm. of Vodan. Mm. Uh, you, say, you say you were worshipping Vodan and therefore it was a death cult, but then you would uh, have some identification with... The, you know, high, high adults claim is that it was a tribe coming, Snorri's claim too, that it was a tribe coming from the Caucasus, headed by a historic figure called Odin. Yes, exactly. But just like with all these religious myths, um, they are primarily myths. <laughs> and they are primarily cultural myths of, of certain gods, of certain cultural traditions that are moving along, linked with language, etc., you can, just like with the New Testament, yeah, there might have been a person, but it's more or less irrelevant. It, it's the name, the cultural framework, that is what really matters. Yeah, but the relevance comes in when we get archaeological and Absolutely. Uh, like historical indications. For example, that, okay, there was, if there was a person, whether it was a person coming from the East or not, at least we see a tradition coming from the East. That's the significance, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so... But it, Rodan is just the same as Hermes and, and Mercury and Osiris and, you know, he... he Tooth. Hermes, yeah, he's, he's, he's the death cult. He's the cult of going into the darkness, going into the cave, um, meeting the darkness, finding the true inner source, overcoming fear of death. And, and this is what the Viking were famous for. They... They were fearless in battle. They they had overcome their their fear of death, especially the berserkers. I, I think yes. maybe we should isolate those guys from the general crowd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, mm-hmm. uh, what can you tell us about the berserkers? Have you looked into them? We obviously have, we have the myths about them. That uh, the myths uh, were really about that they were naked and mm-hmm. iron would not bite on them, and they would be the front of the line right? in battle. Whether they are actually 
true fighters or they're metaphors for those who are going into the to the deepest access of of the self. I don't know, but we have legends of them, and they're often described as slightly unstable, violent, yeah. aggressive people. And um, that they were causing trouble for the locals. Yes, yes. That's what we have in our myths, in our uh, local uh, myths. They are mm. kind of a... You don't want them for neighbors. <laughs> they are <laughs> impulsive and powerful and dangerous. No wonder they were put in the front line. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is that we have also this, uh, if you like, shamanic tradition, which is possibly the same as the berserkers, is that that some of our first settles were bears, were wolves, and they would go to battle, but not in body. They would go into trance, and they would appear on the battlefield mm. uh, as an animal, and they would fight in that battle form. And then the question is, is it literal, or is it actually that they're taking medicine, just like the North Americans, and etc.? They manifest in their inner world, like yeah. a particular animals, and they face whatever they have to face in the internal world. Yeah, I, I, I suggested to Thor Elptidal, I had him on for a show called What You Should Know About Vikings. When we're talking about the shapeshifters, I suggested to him a pragmatic solution, but realistic, I think. And you know um, Game of Thrones. Did you ever keep an eye on that? Of course. Yes, yeah. yes. So you remember the people in the north of the wall? In the north. Yeah, so they uh, fused their consciousness with, for example, a bird. And then they could fly over over the skies and they could see through the bird, right? That's a basic shamanic practice that the author has integrated into this yeah. universe. Now, that's a shape-shifting because your consciousness is, is shifting from the human shape to the animal form. Yes. It doesn't mean that your body is, sh is shifting, no, right? exactly. And, and the thing is, our first settler traditionally, which is Ingolf, uh, who claims to be of the royal line of the Ilvink, so he is, he is of the royal line of the firewolves, and his name literally means firewolf, and his blood brother, Heriolf, Her means the high wolf. So they are, and our main mountain here near Reykjavik is the wolf mountain. And, and traditionally, the wolf, the dog, and in Egyptian tradition, the anubis, is the, is the, the, the master of the inner journey. And most of our first settlers are named with their dog. And even the settlers had a special grave for this first settler dog. The dog was very important on early, um, early settlement. Uh, and I suspect that it is a symbol of, of that guiding principle on your inner journey. Mm. Hmm. But let's uh, rewind to the settlers of America, the yes. explorers of America. Now, if yeah. the if our hypothesis is correct that when the Norse settles Iceland, they f integrate with the, the pre-culture, the the originally are uh, actually a native, uh, a paganistic culture. In fact, I think maybe the the Christians on Iceland at that time. They must have been Celtic Christians, and as such, they must have preserved the pre-Christian traditions, because the Celtic Christianity, what we know about them is that they were 
much more radical than oh, yeah, of course yeah. the Catholics, right? And we even have, uh, you know, uh, Harald Bolk uh, shows evidence that the Pope, for example, he was after they crushed the Celtic Church in uh, the British Isles, and I've said it before many times on this show that the Celts themselves have uh, stories about how Jesus came to uh, the British Isles together with, I think it was Joseph yeah, yeah. or Arithmetria for, for trade, right? And so, that, so that's the origin of the Celtic Church. And we know the Celtic Church also have geometrical lore, yes. uh, stuff similar to Egyptian yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah, Gnostic. So, and I'm sure you're, you're familiar with the old the now archaeological evidence linking the Celts with the Egyptians. Right, right. We know that a lot of the metal that the Egyptians got, they got it from the seafarers who brought copper from Britain. But we also now found in Tara Hill, which is the kind of high king hill in, in the mead of Ireland, we have found burials of monkeys from Egypt and cows, cow worship. Wow. And there's even indication that the, the words for the old people uh, is actually the name of Thoth. And so that there seems to be a strong cultural connection with the old Celtic and the Egyptians. Yeah. And um, well, no wonder that uh, you know, there were trade routes established. So it wouldn't be, yes, yes. It wouldn't be weird for, for Jesus to go there. But the thing is, yeah, yeah. if all this is a given and then comes the Norse people to... To, yeah, yeah, I was just going to say before I get to that, that Bulke told us how uh, after they crushed the Celtic church, Norway was the last bastion of it. So yeah. there is banbulls from the Pope, you know, Banbulla, where they condemn, where they try to threaten the Norse bishop to come into the fold, you know, convert. Yes. You, lost, you lost the mainland in the British Isles. Now just give up already, okay, and become Catholics. Yeah. <laughs> so obviously, yeah, really. obviously, both the Norse—I uh, mean, the Norwegian First Norwegian Church was uh, Celtic, and that also means the Icelandic, because we are the one who lured you into into the conversion <laughs> to the beginning. Well, I think our myths say that we were Christian from the start. So when, or even before the Norwegians, no, yeah, well, both before the Norwegians, but some of the of the first settlers mm. were Christian people from the British Isles. Oh, that's right. And and they okay. So they didn't. Well, wait a minute. So they didn't flee because they were Norse and were no, forced to no, become no. Christian. No, no, they were all there. The story says that they most of the Christianity was gone by the year thousand. But for example, near Reykjavik is the farm of Esberg. And uh, the founder of Esberg is called Erlivur, which kind of means the first of light, first light. He is sent by St. Patrick, which is strange, by Bishop St. Patrick, uh, to go to Iceland to found the church of St. Columba. So we have a, a myth of a particular farm, a particular church founded based on Celtic Christianity. And there are... Um, Many such, Odin, uh, uh, the the royal, the queen of Dublin, moves to Iceland in in the ninth century, and she founds a church. She's Christian, and and uh, she's Celtic Christian from Dublin. Wow! So we know really from the start, but there is also legend that we also were Armenian Christian. We had links with the bishops of Armenia, so that's wow. really down to the old Christianity. Wow. So we had many sources of our Christianity really from the start. 
But did anyone settle in Iceland who was pagan? Uh, well, most of the early founders were Norwegian pagan. Okay, so you're saying that they were both Christian and yes. pagan. Christian was the minority, but it was there from the start. Ah, okay, I see. I see your point. And and uh, no wonder they would get along with the locals because they would be the same type of Christians, and yes. they would also have a related pagan earlier tradition. Yeah, yeah. And so, if everybody looks at this as a holy place, no, they come there, they integrate. Obviously, they must have heard about the earlier travels to America from the. Uh, steadfast lore from the old days, from the Celtic yeah, from, uh, from the Celts. Yeah, yeah, the Celts had this old. Yeah. So, what do you learn in school about this? Uh, do you learn well, officially that you went to Americas? Well, we we obviously learned that we do. Yes, that that uh, Eric Rödi, Eric the Red, he travels to Greenland and Labor the Lucky, he goes to Newfoundland. So we have this these stories, and in fact. Uh, there's a statue at the center of town from, I think, Americans. Um, they gave us a statue of Leif Lelocki, as I'm saying, we honor the history of Iceland as being the first to settle in North America. But everybody can. I mean, even in Norway, we, we learn about uh, the settling of um, Newfoundland and Greenland. Yes, yes. But... You know, the contested point is Vinland. How south did they go? Yeah, it and and we yeah, yeah, we have Markland, we have Halluland. Yeah, so, yeah. And if they bother to name all these places in the North Americas, it means they've been there enough. Of course, and they've settled there, or they had commerce yeah. with those places. Yes. So, so what do you make of this? <laughs> Well, it, it clearly demonstrates the ongoing traditions of the Vikings. They're experts, seafarers, they're explorers, they're into commerce, they're looking for opportunities. They they create new com communities wherever they go. They integrate with other cultures. You know, this is just an ongoing history from Caucasus to, to Uppsala in Sweden, to Norway, to Orkneyland, to Iceland, to Greenland, to Canada, etc., uh, we the Scandinavians, they more or less took over all of Europe. They were in Turkey, they were in Malta, they had half of Italy, they had half of of Russia. They, they had Russia, they had France, they had Spain. <laughs> they were all over mm. because they were interested in property and commerce. They were not so keen necessarily keeping their language or their culture. But mm. they moved on. Mm. But how far south do you think they went then? Because uh, uh, some people think Vinland was just, you know, around Nova Scotia, but some think it went further south. And there are, you know, Scott Walter in his shows have explored many Viking traces all over. Uh, well, we were talking earlier about psychedelics, yeah, mm, mm. and Vinland, Vineland. Perhaps in the land of the psychedelics, the land of the sacred drink. Ah. So it could be that they had found a place where there were strong traditions of a sacred medicine, and and they respected it and gave it the land, the land of the sacred drink. Well, if vin may means wine, yeah, well, to be sure. But but doesn't vin mean friend? Well, it can it can mean friend, and it can, if you go to mythology. 
uh, it's also Vanir, ah. the, the gods of love, yeah. who, who is Freyr and Freya. So it could be that is linked with the land of love. A fertile land. Yeah. So it's Freyr and Freya were the goddesses of the heart, a god and god of the heart. So they're kind of Osiris and Isis. Mm. They are this old tradition. They, they are... In, in Nordic mythology, we have the three qualities of beings. We have the Isis, which are the wise, linked with the head. We have the Vanir, which are the, uh, the beings of the heart. And we have the, the Thursar, which are the passions of the belly. So the, and there is battle between all these three forces, these principles of, of the human being. Mm. Even if it means wine land, it still means fertile land because you can't have wine if it's desolated, right? So yes, exactly. It would be something they could pick berries, or there are some fruits that are a little bit like berries, but yeah, wine land. Yeah. Uh, let's take a little detour. You mentioned the Varangian god. Yes. So, what was special about them? About the the Rangian knights, yeah, well, because we know that they obviously were the they were such a good soldiers that they were hired. They were mercenaries for the Byzantine, exactly. right? Well, the Rangian but, knights. Were but but hang on, hang on. It yeah. seems to me that they are in the tradition of the berserkers in a way. I think so. Yes, yes, definitely. And and they 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 were founded by an Icelander mm. who was the grandson of Öður, the Christian settler. From from uh, from um, uh, from Ireland, from Dublin. So she moved from Dublin to to Cranmer uh, in, in Iceland, and the grandchild Bodli Bodlason, he was a famous warrior, and he goes to um, to Constantinople, and um, and he more found founds the um, the Rangian Knights, and they remains a Scandinavian force. And, and uh, they were the kind of special forces of, of the Roman Empire for three, four hundred years. And they were the key for the survival of the East Roman Empire. Yeah, yeah. And they, rem- and they continued to source their, their powers from, from Scandinavia. And what is more important, that they were so valued that they were the highest paid workforce in the Roman Empire. Whenever a Roman emperor died, they owned the treasury right. of the Roman Empire. Right. It was their private property. Hmm. Yeah, it's funny because Galata, the area in uh, today's Istanbul, which it, it, Galata actually means Celtic. It's the same as Gal. Yeah. Um, it originally was a Celtic place, and then there was where the Vikings were living too. You still see people there, from there who are like red beard or yeah. blonde hair or something. So yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the traces are there. But it's also interesting that, again, we see the following in the tracks of the Celts. The Celts lived there long before the Vikings, of course. Yes, Celts, yes, yes. Celts have been everywhere. It's like the Celts yeah. are an original habitants. So do you think, I mean, how early do you think it was possible to live? In these areas of Scan- of the North uh, Europe, in Iceland. after the uh, no, yeah, Iceland, the Western Islands, even Norway, after the Ice Age, How well, uh, pretty, pretty quickly. We're talking about ten, twelve thousand years ago. But isn't it weird then that we know so little up to 
Well, I mean, we only have we only have written history for a few thousand years. Yeah, we have. Uh, yeah, so it goes back. Written history doesn't really go much further back than three thousand years. The archaeology is obviously different, difficult in Iceland and Norway, partly because there's not much mud and because of the quality, most things melt away, so it's difficult to to see. But obviously, you in Norway, you have a lot of of stone carvings in caves and and uh, on cliffs that show that there's early settlement there, all the way up to to Trums, isn't that the way way up north? Trums, yeah. How early back yeah. uh, does it go? Well, I think there has been some suggestions that the metal from Trums went all the way to to old Egypt. Wow. So I think that, you know that's why Trums and that area was so um, so important because uh, they were expert miners and they were selling metal to all over Europe. Mm. But do you think it was settled immediately after the Ice Age? Yeah, I think so. You know, as soon as the plants and the animals move north, humans follow. Yeah, yeah. I just wonder who was the first people inhabiting the Northwest. There are legends of an original people, you know. Yes, probably the Laps or the Finns or the Samos, whatever you want to call them. Yeah, I'm not sure you because think yeah, I know. Yeah, but not all over. Uh, like no, because they came another route, you know. Yeah. So yeah, they may have uh, you know been fooling around in the north and uh, northeast, but. Um, you know, end of Scotland, Doggerland, yeah, 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 yeah. the West. I, I, I don't see Samis out on the fairy islands, to put it like that. So No, but if, if as is suspected, because now we have growing archaeological studies at the bottom of the sea, mm. and there is both in India and in Europe, there is evidence of a relative high culture at what is now under the sea. So we're talking about 12, yeah. 14, 15, 20,000 years ago. You know, there was a perhaps even high culture, possibly the Atlantis, whatever. Yeah, there, there was a relatively high culture in those areas, which now, like in Iceland, possibly as as far as fifty hundred kilometers out, there would have been a land that in the ice age would possibly have been populated, just like around the British Isles, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm. So there could have been a high culture there, just as we are finding now in also around India going back before the Ice Age, mm. out into the sea. Mm. This, uh, yeah, it, it brings us to Atlantis and Tula, of course. Now, I have to ask you about Hyperborea. What's your take on that? Yeah. Because let, let me say this as an introduction, that when I had the Dr. McIntosh on, we discussed whether Iceland could be what the ancient Greeks referred to as Hyperborea. Now, they were describing... We have some specific, actually, navigation. They say exactly how many days it takes to get there from inland. Now, I can't recall yeah. all uh, in, at the moment how I should have done that research before this show. But still, I think it took a little long time if it was Iceland. Back in the day, how long time would you say it would take from, from England to Iceland, you know, before boats got modern? Machine. Yeah, it's kind of five, five to seven days from uh, Britain to Iceland in summer. Okay. So it, so it is, uh, yeah, it, all the stories, if you go 
um, back through all these stories about Thule, Hyperborea, or Ogigia, which is the old oldest name, the Iliad describes Homer taking this path, uh, and Apollo, and there, you know, there, and then we have, uh, is it Pithos in uh, Marseille? Mm. Uh, they all take this route, same route describes again and again and again. There is no other possibility than Iceland. They go to Britain and they sail to the northwest following the uh, settling um, midsummer sun and they sail for, for, for less than a week and they are there. There is no other possibility. And obviously, we know that is at the Arctic Circle because it's, they all describe the sun is hardly settling. Mm. It's still bright in in um, in the midsummer. So, as you may know, in Iceland, it's a little bit like in Trondheim. We have this trick question for foreigners here: How long do you think the summer day is? And they will say, "Oh, it must be twenty-three hours." No, no, it's three months. <laughs> <laughs> because, and this is what they, all the stories are describing: that this is a land of the midnight sun. Mm. And and not only that, you know, Iliad Homer from Ithaca, he goes there after the Trojan War, and he becomes a student of Calypso, who is just like the seven sisters of the Pleiades. He's one of the daughters of Atl- of Atlas, but they are all Atlantis. Atlantis literally means the daughter of Atlas, mm. and Calypso, who is the who is the goddess of esoteric science. <clears throat> she is the teacher of, of Homer, and he studies with her for seven years. This is, in fact, very similar, and it's a Saturnian, you know, a quarter of the Saturnian circle that Plutarch refers to, that the, the, the Irish, the Celts, also talk about that there's a fog around Brazil, mm. and every seven years... Hyper, Hyperazil. Yes, there's a fog around it, Hyperazil, exactly. Mm. And and uh, every seven years or so, the fog lifts and you can go there. Mm. Uh, the Greeks went there every four cycles, but the, uh, the Celts did it every seven years, quarter of a cycle. And this is the Saturnian cycle. Maybe they saw it, as you know, the four dwarfs or the four guardians of the of the zodiac, like Aldebaran and Taurus, mm. the four archangels. They stand perhaps for the moment where you are allowed to sail to, to Iceland. Now, the Hyperboreans were said to be a very civilized, very enlightened people, very advanced in technology. Yes. We know that um, there are stories about them. For example, we have Abaris, the priest uh, who came to Pythagoras and gave him a a golden arrow or something. Now, obviously, Professor Kingsley thinks he came from the northeast, you know, from this, he was a shaman from, I don't know, Tibet to Siberia. But wouldn't he also have come from Iceland? Most definitely. This uh, Iceland, uh, for the Greeks, which is very obvious from the Iliad, was their homeland. And and for them, uh, like Plutarch describes, when Saturn approaches uh, Taurus, then he starts to get close to the Pleiades, to the seven sisters in the sky. And what do the seven sisters stand for? They stand for the homeland of the planets. So all the gods, they come from the Pleiades. So as Saturn is coming home, the spiritual students go to Iceland as they are the, the sun returning back home. Mm. They're going to the source to learn and come back to, to share their knowledge. 
It's funny. It means that Iceland has been a beacon in civilization two times in his, actually three times. Let me give you the argument. Okay. First time, no, four times maybe. First time is if it has anything to do with Hyperborea, Tula. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Second time would be when the Celts uh, settled. Yes. And the third time would be around Snorri Sturluson's time. You you claim that 12th century Iceland was one of the most advanced society on the planet. Definitely, yeah. Warfare, astronomy, literature, poetry, financial wealth, right? Yes, yeah. exactly. But also today, uh, where are WikiLeaks being hosted? <clears throat> where is the last free remnants? You even have a pirate party <laughs> that has been in power. <laughs> it's a freedom exactly. civilization. So I love this uh, important tradition. But... Um, uh, you may be aware of an older version of, of this story. Okay. When the uh, United Nations were founded, uh-huh. it was suggested it should be held in Iceland. Wow. Uh, but they were worried. Where, where did they end up uh, hosting In New it? York. In New York. Right, right. Of course, well, the But there was do. this idea that it should have been in Iceland. Mm, mm. I don't know the logic for and against it, but that would have made it an interesting. Well, I'm sure it has something to do with the Alting, one of the first democracies in the yes, world. Yes, yeah, it could be the the beginning of of uh, democracy and all that. Yeah, because the Greeks get uh, get the kudos for that. But sure. uh, maybe we should just do some general enlightenment. You you tell them how it was ruled. You know the origin of the Ting. People don't even know what that is. Well, this I think the outing um, in in original Iceland we had 108 units of the land mm-hmm. and 108 godar, god priests, just like in the island of Gotland and, and Uppsala. So we had 108. Among these were 36 high priests, if you like, mm-hmm. and at the outing they all gathered. So quarterly they would meet. But initially, just locally, and then a bit larger, and once a year at midsummer, they would meet in Thingvellir. Yeah, and Alting is a parliament, just so people know. Yes, yeah, a national parliament. So mm. the, the parliament tradition goes on every level, from almost for one god, godi to uh, uh, three to twelve, up to thirty-six, up to hundred-eight. So they, they had smaller meetings around the country, and then the big annual meeting. The gathering of all the Godar, and we today we see them almost like parliament. Mm. But I think they were much more than a legal gathering. Yes, they did pass law. They reminded people of the legal tradition. They resolved problems that hadn't been so- settled in the local courts. But they were much more than that. They were a celebration of the gods of the land. They were upholding the mystery tradition. So they were much more a high school of spirit then at just a legal meeting. Hmm. Uh, by the way, when you say that they had advanced um, culture, you, you, you poetry you mentioned, all the stuff, but you also yeah. talk about warfare and wrestling. Yes. Is this the same? There is a very popular in Norway now, it's an old Norse wrestling style. I forgot the name of it, but I spoke with uh, Thor Elptirdal on when I had him on. What's it called again? Um, well, in Iceland, we call it glima. Glima, that's it. So, it, so is that the same? Is that is an ancient practice that has survived? Yes, yes. And there, there are a number of things, and this uh, goes back to what we spoke about earlier about the Burgundian War. Mm-hmm. The Roman Emperor didn't like the Burgundians because they were unbeatable. 
There was no one in Europe could beat them. Even Attila the Hun couldn't beat them. So wait, wait a minute. Where, where, where was their home uh, area? It is in south of Germany. They ruled half of Germany. That's right. Yeah. So the Roman Empire um, uh, got to uh, negotiate with his arch enemy, Attila the Hun, in the fourth century. And um, Attila negotiated with uh, mercenaries from, Nor from, from Norway, which were the heralds, the, the, the high wolves. The uh, not, not the berserkers, but the wolf berserkers. Uh, the, 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 the wolf clan, the high wolf clan. Yeah. And they um, they knew because the, the Burgundians were from the same source. So with Attila techniques and the mercenaries of the heralds, they beat the Burgundians and they ran away to France. On, on behalf of the Romans? Uh, yes, the Romans uh, wanted because the Burgundians were trying to take over the throne of the empire. <laughs> so they they felt they were getting a bit the same they did later for the French. Uh, they married into the royal family of France and they tried to take it over, but they failed and in the end they lost their power. But they were of the same source. But the Icelanders or the heralds or the Trondheim uh, culture, they came back from that war with warfare that remained the key of the power for the next six, eight hundred years. They they had the the bow, which was the almost double distance bow to any other bow in Europe, and they got that from the Mongolians, from, from Attila. They got the whole Icelandic horse. They got the traditional poetry. They got a um they got a lot of um, strange traditions which only continued in Iceland and Mongolia. Mm -hmm. And this was the basis of the Rangian guard of, of uh, Constantinople, that they had techniques that no one else, that's why they were so precious as, as uh, mercenaries. Mm. So the Varangians were just Christianized yes. versions of these of this old they, culture. But probably semi-Christianized. If they were in style of the, um, early on they were definitely heathen. But later mm. on, they probably, just like the Icelanders warriors, they were they honored the old tradition and the new traditions. And mm. it was through the Vodan cult that they overcame the fear of death, and that made them honorable, principled, and uh, fearless, in, uh, fearless in battle. Mm. Speaking of old and new tradition, um, one of the cornerstones of um, Arvid Eustace's uh, theory is that uh, The, you know, masonry is a result of the mixed culture where they were honoring both traditions at the same time. Yes, yes. Right? Yeah. And um, it seems to have been um, a period of overlapping. I I I'm assuming everything up to the, after the Black Plague, forget about it. Yeah. I think after the Black Plague, everything becomes, you know, the mainstream history. But prior to the Black Plague, you could have had those practices in Norway and Iceland too. Yes, yes. I think. Don't you think? Don't you think some of them brought it with them back? Well, I think what we're talking about is the Think tradition. Our Parliament traditions mm -hmm. was what is equivalent today of the Masonic tradition. People were slaves, or they became free men, which means that they were in initiated into the Brotherhood. Mm -hmm. of free men. Mm -hmm. And therefore, they were landowners, they were nobility, etc. Mm -hmm. and, and a lot of the Masonic tradition, as he points out, 
cannot come from anywhere else. I think what happened, whether it was Alastair, King Alastair or someone else, who didn't like the parliament traditions, that was Norwegian all around the British Isles. He said, no, no, guys, we have to be, we have to throw out the pagan traditions. But mm. at the time, they honored both the old and the new. They were like Celtic Christians. Mm. But he wanted out with the Celtic. He wanted out with the, the old traditions. And then they switched the Old Testament of the Norwegian to the Jewish Old Testament right. and made it into a, a, a Masonic tradition that we know today. But they're... As he points out, there are a lot of things that are very curious in the Masonic traditions that no way is from any Christian or, or Jewish tradition and must be from, from yeah. a mystery cult, uh, which is most likely is the, the Scandinavian one. Yeah. So, so basically you're saying that before the Jewish Old Testament, they had a New Testament of Jesus and the Old Testament, which was pagan practice. Yes. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Just like the Celts, they felt there was no problem combining that. No. This is the Celtic Christianity. And uh, clearly the Vikings picked up on that. And it was the key to certainly the Icelandic culture mm. and the Viking spiritual culture in the British Isles. Mm. Hmm. Interesting. So. Uh, what about uh, Sinclair? Do you have any views? Uh, do you learn about him in Iceland? No, not really. Uh, about the royal family that moved to Scotland and yeah, no. Henry Sinclair's journeys to America. No, I'm not familiar with that. Um, okay, I have some faint recollection of that. No. Um, well, there's, there's a new um, discovery, Doctor Muir. I had her on. They found something. Is that the? Yeah, it's like uh, the journals of the Vemis and Sinclair clan. Okay. And the interesting thing about those journals is that. When you go to the earliest entries, where it's Sir Henry Sinclair, yeah, the famed uh, explorer who went all the way to New um, Nova Scotia, then uh, yeah. you see that he describes when he grows up, he talks about gods that they are celebrating. Yeah. Now he's obviously in a Christian family, but yeah. they go to Bergen and and they are parallel. They're, they're holding. Pagan and Christian traditions, yeah, active, yeah, yeah, yeah. actively, yes, just like um, there, there's church uh, with all the pagan symbolism mixed of Christian and which is almost yeah full of the green man, etc. Yeah, yeah, the green man. So, what do you make of the green man? Then we had a show about that too. Well, as, as I said earlier, he is the, the man of Greenland. He is grim. He is chromed up. He is the 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 tree that that flowers or, or leaves itself again and again. He's the reincarnate soul. He's the he's Pan. He's Vodan. He's the forest god. Mm. Pan, of course, yeah, and even Odin. And Odin, definitely. Oh. So he, he, they would have worshipped him as I don't know if they were comparing it. It maybe didn't need to, but in the Greek tradition, he he is Hermes and Mercury, etc. And Hermes and Mercury weren't that important in the Greek tradition, but in in Egyptian and Icelandic tradition, they are number one. So you 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 claim that um, the sea people of the Egyptian myths would be um, 
Well, one, one can postulate that obviously there was this famous war with the sea people, but they probably are those who are, are doing commerce between Scandinavia or from the British Isle to Egypt and selling copper from from Cornwall, etc., and possibly connecting with Ireland and, and leaving their cultural tradition there. So whether they were... I mean, talking far old Egypt, right? Yes, of course. We're talking about 3,000, 4,000 years ago. Wow. Then there, there are seafaring people there, and, and this there are some myths um, written in, in Egyptian tradition about these people. We really... We don't really know who they are, but we know that they were sailing this this way, and, and so they they could have been those who were sailing all the way to Iceland, yeah. and maybe what Homer is, the Iliad is describing, and and all this Marseille tradition of Thule, they may be myths of this same seafaring people who knew this path, this going home, just like in in Tolkien of of Lord of the Rings. Yeah. The high elves are returning home for the Holy Land. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if there was such a thing as Doggerland, yes. uh, there must, uh, who knows, maybe the original Icelanders are a survival of those people who lived there. Well, Plutarch says that the people in Ogigia are uh, descendants of Hercules. Wow. Uh, whatever that means. You could say Hercules it could be the, those who have, a, have achieved spiritual illumination which would be similar to the Indian idea. There's a, an astronomer, I think it is in the 4th century, who calculates the location of Dvipasitta, or the island of the uh, of the Illuminati, if you like. That <laughs> uh, um, And he, he clearly knows it's somewhere in the Atl- Atlantic, uh, pretty near the Arctic Circle. So there are myths everywhere around this sacred place. Mm. Because the Dogalan is said, the last remnant of Dogalan is said to have gone under around 5,000 years before yes. Christ, yeah. which is very early, of course. But uh, th- that could be the people who fled to the end of Scotland, Orkney, yes. put up the stones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, to, and to Iceland. And may have been the first to populate Iceland. Yeah, yeah. Our problem in Iceland is that we don't really have archaeology going that back it may be in caves uh but it's it's we are such a volcanic country it's difficult to get old remnants ah. but hopefully in in coming years we'll start to find and maybe it's under the sea maybe it's um yeah uh, out there somewhere yeah marine archaeological uh excavations yes. maybe we're not going to find this maybe the land we know in iceland today is all highlands <laughs> yeah, five to ten thousand years ago, I don't know, but uh, it could be that's the reason we're not finding much. But even if it was highlands, yeah, you know, back in the day they would go to the highlands for sacred tasks. Exactly. So there could still be stuff to be found in. Uh, yeah. But it's such a huge area to where to look, right? <laughs> and it, and, but I think it's worth mentioning that that in our key poem, Verluspau, yeah. uh, the Sibyl poem. Um, the the goddess, which is kind of the great mother Ida, uh, she says, uh, "I sat alone outside when the old one came," and we call this sitting out. And the sitting out was the core of Icelandic spiritual tradition. It was seeing the mountains and the rivers and the sky as the gods themselves, and 
being with it until you could sense the consciousness of the universe. And this was practiced, we don't know, to 16th, 17th century. And interestingly, it was considered the arch sin in Catholic Iceland. To sit out? To sit out. Ah, uh, so, so they wanted to battle that practice. We don't know fully what it meant. We can only guess. Mm. But we know it was serious. <laughs> <laughs> we know it was the greatest threat to Christianity at the time. Wow. Just to sit out. Because what, what, what our old law said, that if you have a spiritual convocation, it must be outside where the gods can see it. The sky, the mountains, mm. the land can observe you. You will never hold a sacred ceremony inside. So when uh, we became Christians in the... In the uh, yeah, wait a minute, this goes against... Yeah, sorry, go on, go on. Yeah, when we became Christian and we started having uh, churches, mm. this was very opposite to, to our native spirituality. Yeah. What the hell are you locking up for secret celebration? Why are you not involving the land and the gods? Yeah, but we, we have the stave churches here, where, which were modeled on uh, the hove or whatever it was called. So having good houses wasn't something the Christian invented. And no. Talk about inside the worship. What about the caves that were used? Yes, interesting. Back in thousands of years. You know, they found the Patagrine Basilica in, in Rome. Yeah. So it was normal in the ancient times to go deep underground into the earth. Uh, into caves to to worship, so that doesn't very much compute with. This was the, yeah. I think it's both. I think the the general was outside, but the other was inside the earth, and we had some celebrations linked with that. And and interestingly, in the Celtic west uh, west side of Ireland, mm -hmm. is where there were lots of uh, man made caves. Mm. So the the people there lived in caves, and in part of the south of Iceland, we found a lot of man-made caves. Ones uh, there are a few that have been excavated at the moment, and they hint at that this is the remnant of of a Celtic um, celebration in Iceland. But we also there are a few caves that have been we have found pearls uh, like prayer beads that are clearly way back. Mm. So there is, uh, I mean, before Christianity, because these special glass beads were very precious as kind of ornamental prayer beads, and they were used by the Vikings, and we have found them. And they have also been found where the Vikings are being excavated on, on the east at the moment. So there is evidence that uh, caves were used as well for, for sacred celebration and for habitation, especially in the south. Mm. Uh, and, and, and thank God you said that they are currently excavating these places. Yes. Uh, that's good. Maybe something more will come in the future. Have you heard about the discoveries made in far north of Russia? No. Uh, Macintosh mentioned it. it it's, it's triggered a whole renaissance of uh, this northern myth Is that, mythos. Okay, tell me. Yeah, well, Is that this uh, fort that was found way north? No. Yeah, like like a sacred place. Nobody lived there, yes. but it was like a pyramid. There was a throne. Yeah, it was like a sacred site. Yeah. but no, no land, no living people in in, in huge uh, proximity. So no, they're trying to figure out where did these people go. Um, yeah. you know where, where did they live before that when they used it. Uh, there's a lot of riddles around this. 
It could be like our Althinki, maybe an annual meeting mm. to coming to our sacred place for sacred rituals, mm. honoring the gods, honoring maybe an ancient source of their history, whatever. But I think this goes back thousands of years, like before evidence of people even yeah. living there. It could be the, the... I mean, obviously after the Ice Age, but so, sometimes yeah. between 10,000 yeah. BC and... Uh, this could be the Indo-European roots. The Indo-European roots go very way back. So the the roots of all the cultures from from India, from Iran, from Greek, from from the Egyptian, from the Greek, from the Romans, the Scandinavians, uh, and all the Russian speaking languages, they all come from central source, which we could say maybe six to twelve thousand mm. uh, BC. Mm. Uh, and we we share a common source of language and stories, so we know and spirituality and spirituality. And this uh, we we don't know where the Mecca is, where the sources uh, sources. We they all co- often called the steppes uh, north of the Black Sea, but it could be that this was their their homeland um, reference point. I don't know. Yeah, so the idea is that they they emigrated all the way to the Black Sea, and from there they spread yeah. uh, west, south, and east, obviously. Yes, yeah, yeah. And east being those who came to India eventually. Exactly, mm. yeah. I can see why they call white people Caucasians. Yeah. It's not completely random. No, the, the, because of this myth that we all come from the north side of the Caucasus Mountains. Mm. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, I just to tell you that one of my studies um, is about sacred mountains and their reference points. And for example, the highest mountains in Western Europe are called the White and the Red Mountain. So Mont Blanc and Monte Rosa. Mm. And in Norway, we have Kaltöpigen uh, and Glittertint, which is kind of the cold and the glowing mountain. That's right. Now, and the, such names, sun and moon, if you like, man and woman, are found in most center of, of cultural areas. Now, you could argue that there's a similar thing in the Caucasus Mountains. The highest mountain there uh, is a kind of reference point. And, and in story of, of Snorri Sturluson, that Wodan comes from this mountain and he goes to Uppsala. But the odd thing is that Uppsala... Rome mm-hmm. and Mecca are all in the same distance from this particular mountain. Aha. Uh-huh. So there. Wow. And, and wait a minute. So Mecca, obviously, important spiritual center for the Muslims. Yes. Now, Rome was uh, obviously the Catholic heart. Yes. And then Uppsala was <clears throat> the major base for the preservation of the Norse yes. spirituality and tradition. Yeah. So. So that hints at, first of all, these are from different time periods. The mm. oldest is the Roman, but it seems that when we're placing sacred centers, we were still aligning to the power of the central god, the highest mountain, whether you call it the great mother. Like the oldest tradition, the highest mountain is the great mother, and then it becomes the great father, but it is the place where the origin of the sacred uh, illuminates comes from, it's the source. So mm-hmm. um, they took, and they took measurements very importantly that, that in a certain direction, in a certain distance, you would create your sacred place. Mm. 
Okay, we're running out of time, but uh, last questions before we talk generalities. Uh, what about the platonic numbers in Icelandic text? Yes, we have this interesting, in, in one of our gathering of texts, which was made by our high lawyers, or the, the celebrant of, of Althingi, um, Haukur Erlendsson, so it's often called Hook's book. Uh, one of the chapters, who is interestingly was excluded until recently, because the the um, the Icelanders found it so irrelevant they didn't include it. <laughs> but it is um, called Algorithms, and it's referred to an Arabic mathematician, and it describes a very interesting uh, understanding of numbers, which kind of Plato is referring to, but he doesn't give the numbers away. That You could say they're implied in the Platonic solids. But he, more or less in short, says there are only two numbers. The number two and the number three. And you could argue that this is mother-father. Two is mother, three is father. And all the, the numbers that are the outcome of their multiplication are the children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren of the mother and the father. So you have uh, two and three, and then you have four, six, and nine, which is kind of mother, father, and son, or child. And then you have the numbers eight, 12, 18, and 27. And these four numbers are seen as the elements. Eight being the earth, it's two times two times earth, two times two times two, so it's mother, mother, mother. Fire is 27, three times three times three. And then... Uh, water is 223 and air is 233. And, and they argue that the visible world is in 3D. So it is the creative numbers multiplied in some way three times. So the visible world is all created by the uh, multiplication of these three, of these numbers. And then they imply a fifth number and they don't give it away which they called cubus perfectus, or the perfect cube. Mm. Cube meaning a number in the power of three. Mm. And, and that most likely is the number 216, which is six times six times six, which obviously, you know, from the, um, the, the, um, uh, from the New Testament, is, on one hand, the number of Adam, the, the, the perfect man, and the number of devil, the, if you could like the fallen man who is incarnated and has lost his source to the infinite. So they are kind of the alpha and omega of the spiritual tradition. And it also links with the Greek tradition of these nine or ten series of number 111, 222, 333, up to 999 and 1,000. So they are cubed numbers written 111, 222, etc., and, and so 216, the, the sacred cube, is interesting also because the cathedral tower in many of the old uh, churches in, in, in Europe had a cube above the altar, which was measured by 6 times 6 times 6, and it was the, the room of the bishop. It was the holy cube. It was the sacred stone of the mason, etc., etc., so uh, we have these four or five numbers. One are the elements, and one is the kind of spiritual source, the fifth element. 
Hmm. So it indicates that there must have been an exchange of lore with the maybe ancient Egypt, ancient Greeks. Greeks, yes. I think we don't fully understand, but clearly in the 11th and 12th, 13th century, we were gathering information from everywhere. Mm. And both from some are postulating that these came from Spain, these texts. They have now been located and we know where how they were made, and etc., etc. But clearly, these um, documents ended up in Iceland, mm-hmm. and uh, and so and they open a new understanding of measurements and numerology in ancient texts of how. Yeah, that's why they have found grammoriums in Iceland. I don't know if you yes, heard about. Yes, lots of, of magical books. Yes, yeah. lots of uh, some of them are a mix of of European and some are more special Icelandic uh, magical runes mm. because we, we we did use runes up to the I don't know 16th 17th century more for special purposes yeah um, and the runes are, are probably very old Vikings probably brought them from Caucasus but you could argue they are kind of primitive letters who are, are kind of like cartoon pictures of men and yeah, I mean, all the sacred languages in the ancient times were like that. Yes. They were very visual, right? Yes. Hieroglyphs too. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and, the, and the magical runes are very much part of that old runic lore, which was sacred sound, sacred image, uh, seeing them as, as what the Greeks would call the archetype of the universe. Mm-hmm. If you knew how to connect with it, you had the power over wind and water and earth, etc. Mm. You know, this specific uh, subject matter, I think we can pick up next time we talk, because I see an angle into the psychedelic world from this. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> you know, how to trigger psychedelic experiences without substances, yes. which is possible. So we'll have you back and talk about that. But before you go today... Um, Tell people about, now that the cat is out of the bag, you know, uh, what do you have to do with psychedelics up in Iceland? Well, uh, everything and nothing. (laughs) (laughs) We have to, we have, wait a minute, we have like three minutes, so see if you can. Yes, well, I, I, one of my clients, this is about four years ago, I have been treating, I'm a psychiatrist, been treating with uh, treatment-resistant depression. Uh, In the end, I tried everything on him. He said, Harold, your drugs are shit. I'm going somewhere else. <laughs> and I said, well, keep me informed. A month later, he came, and there was nothing wrong with him. Wow. Then I said, what? Yeah. <laughs> now I'm interested. Keep me informed. And, yeah. and what he had done, he had taken microdose of psilocybin Icelandic mushrooms. Hmm. And just in a month, his depression had gone. And then I started looking up the literature, and I started uh, kind of connecting with people who, who were leading ceremonies in Iceland. And, you know, I got very interested. And in then I called all these people together and we created a pressure group to try to legalize psilocybin. And we've been very pushy uh, for the media to pick it up. And there have been a number of programs in the TV on it. And I've been pushing also the health minister and members of parliament to make it legal. And if successful, it might become legal this year in Iceland. 
but but you are like are you a strict and puritan in general towards stuff like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. I'm a vegetarian. Never, never drank alcohol. Never smoked. Never. No, no, not you personally. But I mean, your country yes. is that as bad as our country on these matters? Oh, we obviously had the prohibition and uh, for cannabis too, right? Yeah, oh yeah. But they they are trying to pass a law now in Parliament. They've been trying it for two three years to pass a law, just like in Spain and Portugal, that owning and using is not illegal, which was very successful. Mm. And you, ha- I, but you have conferences coming up. Give a plug to that. Yeah, we are we are holding an international conference in January on psychedelics. I tried about three years ago to get the uh, uh, get it as a as a topic for half a whole day uh, in January a few years ago, but I think the medical union was a bit scared. It was a because it's kind of. Um, <laughs> heresy, if you like, it's forbidden yeah. topic, uh, and they wouldn't even answer me. So now we have decided to have our own um, international conference, very close to the medical uh, annual meetings, uh, and we're getting researchers and leaders of the discussion from all over. Uh, so that would be in January next year. So that would be very interesting. Yeah. Okay, but you have another conference, don't you? After that, again, an academic conference. Well, well I'm I'm just holding a small uh, meeting at the Tios. Okay, uh, we have to go. Thanks a lot for for coming on today, Harald. And uh, we will go a bit more into this later next time we talk. Very good. Thank you, Harald. Yep, yep, yep. That's our show today. Before I leave you, I want to give you an update on geography. It's been a while, long while since last time, and we share those stats. Now, of course, number one, country. I mean, it, this is unfair. This list is unfair. We should really, uh, it should really be somehow measured proportionally up to uh, the number of citizens in each country. That would be interesting to see. Uh, that way, for example, Icelanders would probably be higher up than, uh, for example, Finlanders or whatever. I'm, I'm just taking random examples here. I haven't checked. But uh, as long as the small countries are in the mix, it's going to be skewed, right? But on top is, of course, the United States. Uh, number two, uh, probably not very surprising, is because most of the next is basically Anglophone countries have an advantage here. So number two is United Kingdom. Three is Canada, and they are very close, actually. And then Australia. It's nice that so many people in those two countries are tuning in. It means despite their horrible fascist governments, they are there's many dissidents. Then comes Netherlands. Maybe not such a uh, surprise because although they are not... Anglophonic by mother tongue, they are like Scandinavians, very good in English. Then comes Germany, which is quite a feat because Germans and French, they are much more insistent on <laughs> speaking their own language and making that the world language. Then comes actually Sweden, right before Norway. Again, it's because Sweden has a larger population. Otherwise, I think it would be the opposite. But it's very close in viewership. Then comes Ireland. Kind of disappointed that they're so far down. Don't know what what their problem is. Uh, Then New Zealand and India, which is actually 
officially anglophonic. They have um, that as their common tongue, because there's so many uh, languages in that country, although it shouldn't be called a country, it should be, really, it should be called a continent. Um, in a way, you could regard Bangladesh, India, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, Kashmir, Nepal, ah, the Bhutan, I think, there's a few other small countries, but all that should be like one part of the, indeed, once it was the great India, so... So we have uh, listeners there, that's great. Then comes Denmark. And number 13 is South Africa. Interesting. Again, an uh, Anglophone country. France. And 15 is Philippines. I'm always amazed that they are so high up on the scale. Uh, Finland is next. I just mention it because uh, they belong to the Nordic countries. Then follows a bunch of European countries. Croatia, Spain, Belgium, Poland... Mexico, Romania, Portugal, Brazil, Thailand, Serbia, Greece, Switzerland, Austria, etc., etc., etc. I see we have uh, further down the list, we have Iceland. We have more listeners in Iceland than in Saudi Arabia, Taiwan, and Russia. <laughs> Russia is number 15. Okay, before departing, I'll just be... Reminding you that you find us at several video platforms. Our complete curriculum is on Rumble, YouTube and Odyssey. We've started to release some shows on BitChute and Substack. And of course, uh, whichever podcast platform you prefer, you'll find all our shows there and even more releases than at the video platforms because we pre-release a few shows there. Because the video platform is our main tool of operation, that's why we call it a pre-release when we put them out on the podcast platform, because the audience is smaller there. If it grows to take over the video market or become uh, the same size, we will consider officially launching shows there instead. But if you subscribe to our website, there's always going to be at least 10 unreleased shows at any given time. Uh, After the principal one in, one out. We do want to share, like Bella promises, all our main shows to the public, rather than the model of withholding special shows or part twos. But with that model of uh, 10 unreleased shows at any given time, which of course in practice have uh, tended to be more, uh, at some point, we were up to 50 unreleased shows. But with that model, you'll have exclusive access. And at the same time, everything will eventually be out to the public. And remember, we prefer crypto coins, especially bitcoins, uh, for your don- donations. And uh, if you use bitcoins, we even accept half the amount. The minimum is a dollar a month. So for a year, it's $12 and up, but with Bitcoin, $6 and up. But of course, you can pay more. I mean, the philosophy here is to be as inclusive as possible so that we we don't want people to give away money they don't have. But if you can afford more, you may consider a price closer to what is usual. I mean, most podcasts, I guess, is like $6, $8 a month. 
And maybe they release more shows than we do, but with us, you'll get uh, two shows a month. And in average, um, I mean, there may be slow months and then an accelerated release. But that would be akin to, I guess, five, six hours a month. And then the occasional extras, bonus, behind the scenes stuff. That's it. Thanks for following us. And for all your support, I've been your host, Al, all the way from top of the globe. And as the Icelanders say, blind is a man without a book. Be seeing you. Number one.